Thanks for listening to the Church in the City podcast. Subscribe on iTunes and follow at Church in the City. We are jumping right into the book of Nehemiah, and my job today is to introduce us to this particular series, which I'm very, very excited to do. At, at first glance, the book of Nehemiah is about a rebuilding project. Nehemiah, who is an Israelite serving faithfully in the courts of the king of Persia, is eventually called by God uh, to go back to Jerusalem with some of God's people to rebuild the walls. But when we dig into the book of Nehemiah, book of Nehemiah there's so much more that is going, going on. On one hand, it's, it's Nehemiah's personal testimony and personal story of the unbelievable, almost miraculous outcome of what happens when an ordinary person, an ordinary man, says yes and lives wholeheartedly for the God of the impossible. And on the other hand, the book of Nehemiah continues to tell us the amazing story that the entire Bible tells us, the story of of God uh, who is loving and faithful, redeeming the world back to himself, ultimately through his son Jesus. God calling people back from exile so that they can become heirs of the unshakable kingdom, pulling people back into relationship with him and restoring the world back to the way it, it should be. And so as we read Nehemiah together, there are a couple of things that I have faith for in this particular series. Firstly, the first thing that I'm trusting that God would do in our hearts through this series is that, he would, that this book would encourage wholehearted living. That this book would encourage wholehearted living, where, uh, like Nehemiah, we would be those who's, who, 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 where our preference is secondary to God's will and way. Where, like Nehemiah, the, the plights and the anguish of others would begin to stir our hearts to do something, would stir our hearts into action. Where, like Nehemiah, we become deeply dissatisfied with the status quo around us. And, and there is a, an increasing or growing clarity and faith for what might be in God. And where, like Nehemiah, God's dreams in me are bigger than my fears. And that my faith in God is stronger than my feelings of inadequacy. I'm sure we all feel that way sometimes, this feeling of worthlessness and, in, and, and, and inadequacy. But I'm trusting that God's faith would rise in us and become bigger. So the first thing I'm trusting for through the series is that it would encourage us to live wholeheartedly for Jesus. But the second thing I'm trusting for is simply this, is that this book would emphasize the power of persistent prayer. The power of persistent prayer. Prayer that brings heaven's perspective into situations that we face and therefore broadens our horizons and, and, and begins to dwarf our fears and begins to cause faith to rise in our hearts. That ultimately, as we persist in the power of prayer, God's heart would be infused into our hearts. So we're trusting for wholehearted, love, wholehearted living, and wholehearted loving, we're trusting for, we're trusting for the, 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 the importance of, of persistent prayer, that, that, that there would be power released as we pray persistently. But thirdly, the thing that I'm trusting for is that this book would reinforce the authority of God's Word, that it would reinforce the authority of God's Word, that, that when God's Word is positioned correctly over us, and when it is handled correctly, and when it is faithfully and humbly received and courageously obeyed, 
God's word can do incredible things in our hearts. It can, it can enlarge us and inspire us. It can, it can uh, 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 stir us for great things. It can begin to shape us and begin to equip us for the things that God has, has called us to. And like Nehemiah says in the second chapter of Nehemiah, the, God, the Word of God begins to reveal the, ha, ha, the gracious hand of the Lord upon each of us. Nehemiah chapter 2 it says that, that, that there is a great, the gracious hand of the Lord rests upon us. In other words, there are specific things that God has called you and I to. And I'm hoping that through this series, we're going to discover some of that. Wholehearted living, the power and the impact of persistent prayer, the authority of God's word. But ultimately, through this series... I'm trusting that the foundation of who we know God to be, the, what I hope is already an unshakable foundation, I'm trusting that that foundation would be made secure as we journey through this book over the next 13 weeks. Nehemiah reminds us that the God that he worships and the God that we worship in, in, in Nehemiah chapter 1, he says is this, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. And, and we, learn through, we, we are going to learn through the book that, that God is totally reliable, that God is infinitely gracious, God is compassionately merciful, and God is uniquely powerful. And because Nehemiah knows God this particular way, he is, he is eager to seek God's face. He is, he is desperate to pursue God's will. He is, he is yielded in his trust of God. He is desperate to show others the love of God because God is wonderfully near. And those are the, some of the aspects and, and, and attributes of God that we're going to learn through this particular series. Wholehearted living, the power of persistent prayer, the authority of God's word, and the unshakable reality of who God is. Those are some of the things that I'm trusting that God would do in our hearts. And with that said, I honestly cannot think of a, of a more appropriate series for us to go through considering the season we are in right now as a church. And I want to just take two minutes to remind us, those of us who are part of church in the city, just to remind us of the things that God is doing in our hearts at the moment. I want to ask you for one minute to close your eyes. Very quickly, just to close your eyes. And in, in your mind's eye, I want you to picture a construction site of a building. Maybe it's a house. Maybe it's a, it's a warehouse. Maybe it's a high-rise. But I want you to picture that construction site. But as you stand looking, looking at this construction site, I want you to picture nothing above ground, but just simply the foundations having been laid. And as you're standing looking at this construction site, I want you to imagine someone coming up to you and giving you a brick or a, or a building block or a cinder block. And I want you to hear these words today. We begin to build above ground. Can you picture that scene? All right, once you've got that in your mind, you can open your eyes. That's the reality of the prophetic word God gave us in October. And I say that to say church in the city is in the midst of a building project. Church in the city is in the midst of a project where we're not building the church, but Jesus is building his church. And in the light of that, we've just taken 10 weeks at Church in the City to, to reveal and unpack our vision statement, culminating in the, in the banner, all of Jesus for everyone. And I hope you, like me, are, are trusting that our vision framework will transition from teaching and concept to, to living, breathing, arms and legs, power of God through us, reality. But we're not just seeing a spiritual thing built 
Right now, right now, we are petitioning the aldermen and we are petitioning the Chicago Zoning Commission to bring about a change in, in, in zoning variance in order for us to have permission to build at 4216 West Belmont. Because our faith and our sense is God is leading us to our very own location. So not only are we in the midst of a spiritual building project, but friends, we are in the midst of a physical building project. And in the light of all of that, last week, Ken Grenfell came to minister at our church. And for those of you who were there last week, what a powerful time it was. And intentionally, I didn't tell him any of this. And he stands on this stage and he speaks this word over us. He says, I feel the Lord is saying that he has taken us out in order to lead us in to the fullness of God's promises and plans and purpose for us. And he says over us, the season is changing. And so I say all of that to say, friends, what a, what a powerful time. What a, what a specifically unique time. What an exciting time for us to be jumping into this book and saying, God, teach us from the life of Nehemiah what you are building in us. Now, there are many of you here who are part of this family and some of you here who are not part of this particular church family. Many of you here, most of you here are followers in Jesus, of Jesus and perhaps some of you here are not followers of Jesus. And you might be saying to yourself, well, that's all well and good, but I want you all, I want to give you the permission to ask this question. How does that apply to me? How does Nehemiah apply to me? What does this book mean for me personally in my walk with God or in my discovery of who God might be? And so with that in mind, I want to ask you these initial questions. What has God put on your heart and called you to do? What has God put on your heart and called you to do? What is God building in you and through you? Let me ask this another way. What breaks your heart? What burdens you and concerns you? What is the status quo? Uh, what, what is the current set of circumstances around you that causes you to be unsettled and causes you to be disturbed? What do you long to see? What do you dream about seeing that is different to the way things are right now? Now, I want you to take the pressure off yourself, and, and don't worry if you can't answer those questions right away. I, I guarantee you there's probably only a very small handful of people who are able to articulate really good answers to those particular questions. I'm going to take the rest of this morning, the 25 minutes or so that I have left, to provide some context, and then I'm going to return back to those questions. And hopefully at that point, you will be better equipped to answer those questions. But even then, I want to say, don't rush this. Give yourself time, even throughout the series or beyond the series, to start the journey of asking some of these vision-type questions that God wants to work in us. And so, as I said, my goal today is to provide context. I've been told before, I've asked perspective of my wife sometimes of my preaching, and, and she says sometimes that I take a little long to, set, to provide context. And others have agreed with her. And I want to say, yes, maybe I am the king of context, but today is a sermon about context. I want you to settle that. We are establishing context for the sermon and for the entire series. So, so just be aware, today is a sermon about context. And the context that I want to provide is, how does the book of Nehemiah fit into the Old Testament? I think we would do ourselves an incredible disservice to the rest of the series if we just jumped into the book of Nehemiah without understanding how it fits into the Old Testament narrative. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I would suspect there are a number of us here 
who are quite confused about what is the overarching story through the Old Testament. How does it all fit together? And and I'm certainly not going to answer all those questions, but I want to take 10 minutes to give you a kind of an overarching view of what is the story of the Old Testament and how does Nehemiah fit into that? The first 17 books of the Old Testament are, are generally kind of laid out for us in chronological order, which makes it fairly easy. But once we get to the end of Esther, and we suddenly get into the wisdom literature and some of those prophetic books, big and small, it gets really confusing because they're not laid out in a nice chronological order. So what I want to present to you today, just in the, in the next 10 minutes, is five key chapters that are, that are centered around five main historical events that happen in the Old Testament to provide us an understanding of what is the flow of the Old Testament. The first chapter we're going to look at is, I've entitled, Eden. And this simply deals with a part of Genesis, from Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis 11. And it deals with God creating the heavens and the earth. And the pinnacle of His creation is creating Adam and Eve in His image. The other main characters in this particular chapter of the Old Testament are Cain and Abel and Noah. Adam and Eve, who are created in God's image, we know, unfortunately, choose self-reliance and independence and rebellion over God-reliance and trusting in God, and in doing so, introduce sin and sickness and, 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 and death and ultimately separation from God. Not just for themselves and all of humankind, but all of creation is, is, is now separated from God. And we see the immediate consequences are murder in Genesis chapter 4. The flood in Genesis chapter 7 and the Tower of Babel, which is man's attempt to, to separate himself from God in Genesis chapter 11. The beautiful thing about this particular chapter in, in the Old Testament story is immediately after the sin of Adam and Eve, God begins to reveal his ultimate plan to deal with sin, sickness, and death through the seed of Eve, which is, as we know, Jesus who on the cross takes on sin, sickness, and death and defeats them once and for all through his resurrection. The second chapter is the first kind of insight into how God is going to deal with sin, sickness, and death is I've titled Election. And before we go any further, can I say all five chapters are going to begin with the letter E, And I know I'm trying to dispel the rumor that I don't like alliteration, but you know what? I have to be who I am. I am who I am by the grace of God. I love alliteration. The first one is Eden. The second one is election. And this deals with the section of the Bible, Genesis 12 through Genesis 50. And it's centered on God electing, God choosing a pagan worshiper by the name of of Abraham and saying to him, I want to bless you and your descendants and make you into a great nation, and all the nations on the world will be blessed through you. His sons, uh, uh, um, uh, Isaac and Jacob, and eventually Joseph, are the other main characters in this particular chapter of the Old Testament. And this section of, of the Old Testament is, points beautifully to the reality of Jesus, who is the ultimate seed of Abraham. He is the one who justifies, just like Abraham was justified by faith, everyone who places their faith in Jesus is justified by faith. And Jesus is the one who ultimately will bless all nations and all generations. The third chapter in the Old Testament is 
the chapter that deals with the Exodus. And this is around uh, 1500 BC for a 500-year period, and it deals with the books Exodus all the way through to Ruth. This tells the, the dramatic story, the dramatic account of, of God coming through, through the prophet Moses, coming to rescue his people and bring them out of the oppressive rule of Egypt through a sequence of amazing miracles and eventually leading them towards the promised land. Miracles like, like the Passover, which point beautifully to the cross. Miracles like, like Israel crossing through the Red Sea, which, can I just add, points to water baptism that James mentioned earlier. As Israel passed through the Red Sea, they had already been saved from Egypt. But them passing through the Red Sea is a picture of water baptism because it's their declaration that the people that we were in Egypt is now dead. And we are passing into a new inheritance in God. That's the power of water baptism. And as they were passing through the desert, following the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, it's a picture of the spirit baptism. Paul writes in Galatians later that we are to keep in step with the spirit. And friends, that's what what God was illustrating through the Israelites following the cloud by day and the fire by night. Keeping in step with wherever the Lord would lead. Unfortunately, the Israelites had hard hearts, and so God had to give them his law. And eventually, uh, uh, it is Joshua who leads Israel into the promised land. But unfortunately, for about 200 years, they go through a series of ups and downs, repentance and rebellion, repentance and rebellion, under various judges. Eventually, they ask God for a king. And I've already said how this particular chapter in the Old Testament points beautifully to Jesus. Jesus is the one who is leading the ultimate exodus from, from, from bondage and slavery into liberty and freedom. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus is the ultimate lawgiver who doesn't give us a set of external laws, but he writes these laws on, on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's what the kingdom of God is all about. The fourth chapter of the Old Testament I've entitled Empire. And this deals with the period of time uh, around about 1000 BC under initially the rule of David and Solomon. And this golden era, this golden era for, for, for Israel. David and Solomon led the nation of Israel with such integrity. Solomon initially, uh, unfortunately things didn't end, or, end up so well. But during Solomon's reign, they built this elaborate temple where God was worshipped and people from all nations, even rulers from other nations, were coming to worship the God of the Bible. But unfortunately, cracks began to show. And it was under one of Solomon's sons who was leading the nation of Israel at the time that Israel actually split in two. Ten tribes in the north and two tribes in the south. Ten tribes in the north that were eventually called Israel, two tribes in the south that were called Judah. Things didn't go well for the ten tribes in the north, and you can read about this in, in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Corrupt king after corrupt king after corrupt king, until eventually they were exiled in 720 BC by the by the Syrians. The southern kingdom, things didn't fare much better either. Although they had corrupt king, which followed godly king, and then corrupt king following godly king. And about 150 years after they were exiled, after the northern kingdom was exiled, the southern kingdom was exiled too, but this time to the Babylonians. 
And that brings us to the chapter that deals with Nehemiah, the fifth chapter in the story of the Old Testament, which I've entitled Exile, the exile of Israel and their ultimate return 70 years later. King Cyrus, who was king of Persia, had subsequently uh, uh, overthrown the Babylonians. And now God begins to move in Cyrus's heart to release certain Israelites to enable them to go back to Jerusalem in order to rebuild the temple and rebuild the city walls. He, he, he allows for three waves of, 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 of Israelites to go back under the leadership of Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And this is in accordance with his word. God had prophesied and declared that this would happen. I want you to listen to the words that Jeremiah speaks. Just as the Israelites have been captured by the Babylonians. Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 29. This is what the Lord says. This is just as Israel had been captured by the, by the Babylonians. When 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will come to you. And I will fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. In fact, what I love about this particular part of history is God, through the prophet Isaiah, begins to speak about how he's going to use this pagan king Cyrus, who was king of Persia at the time. Listen to these verses from Isaiah 44. Isaiah is speaking of the Lord who, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited. Of the towns of Judah, they shall be rebuilt. And of their ruins, I will restore them. The Lord God who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt. And of the temple, let its foundations be laid. Friends, it's no wonder that Proverbs 21 says, the heart of the king rests in the hand of the Lord. And can I say, friends, we need to hold on to that truth. That truth is as applicable today as it was 1,500 or five, or five, or, uh, yeah, 1500 years ago. The, the, the heart of the king rests in the hand of the Lord. We serve the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Eden, election, exodus, empire, exile, and return. So with that as the context, we're going to jump into Nehemiah chapter 1, and we're going to read the entire chapter together. You guys still with me? Alrighty, let's all oh, let's read together. Nehemiah chapter one. In the month of of Kislev, in the twentieth year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnants that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, "Those who survived the exile are back in the province, and are in great trouble and disgrace." The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted 
very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if you... Even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. We're going to take next week and we're going to unpack the details of Nehemiah chapter 1. But today, remember, we're setting the context for the entire series. I sent Eric Staples a a text on Friday. Eric is a very uh, successful and accomplished brand strategist. And I asked him the question, uh, Eric, can you send me a one-sentence definition for vision? To which he answered, no. Not, no, I won't do it, but no, it is impossible to, to synthesize and summarize vision into one sentence. And what followed in the next five or ten minutes were probably kind of eight or ten texts that came through with different parts and different aspects of what vision means. And so I say all that to say, uh, number one, I am not an expert when it comes to vision. And number two, I am about to step into territory that is incredibly vast and overwhelming at times. But I did take time to synthesize some of the things that Eric gave me, and I want to give you some thoughts, some initial thoughts, maybe five or six sentences that I think capture the heart of what vision is. Vision is one's ultimate aspiration. Vision is, is it, defines, uh, it defines how you see the world and the world you long to see. Vision is the motivational lens through which you view everything, and it defines how you live in order for that vision to become reality. How am I doing so far, Eric? I'm doing great. Double thumbs up. So far, so good. Vision evokes passion. Vision gives us a sneak peek of what might be. Vision allows us to experience the emotions now of, of, of the possible outcome of, 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 a, of a fulfilled, preferred future. Vision provides motivation. The mundane suddenly becomes meaningful as we start the road towards trusting to see the fulfillment of that preferred future that we hope for. Vision sets direction. It serves as a roadmap and it helps to simplify decision making. Vision translates into purpose. Basically, vision gives us a reason to get up in the morning. Vision demands change. And vision pulls us, motivates us, stirs us towards heading, uh, towards that preferred future which we are trusting to see. So vision is not so much something that could be done, but I want to suggest vision is something that should be done to bring about change. But vision starts somewhere. It starts somewhere. It starts with the tension in our hearts. It starts with a sense of dissatisfaction. It starts with a sense of disruption. It starts with a sense of feeling uncomfortable about the status quo. 
And so what I want to put to you this morning is our goal today is not to define your vision in God or God's vision for you. My goal, my hope for today is simply that we would begin to start the process of discovering what is that thing in us? What is that thing around us that is causing a disruption or a disturbance or a sense of discomfort? Because that might be the initial clues to the vision that God has for your life. So I go back to those initial questions. What breaks your heart? What burdens and concerns you? What is it about your current circumstances, the status quo of things around you that that unsettles or burdens you? What do you long to see or dream about seeing that is different to the way things are right now? You see, for Nehemiah, what what burdened him was the, the concern of the ruined state of the social and political and more importantly, the spiritual condition of his people and the nation of Israel. That's what broke his heart. That's what stirred him towards the vision that, that, that God had given him. But his vision didn't start with a vision. His vision started with a concern. His vision started with a burden. And so again, I ask you, what burdens you? What concerns you? What stirred Debs and I initially to, to want to plant church in the city was this desire to, to see a, a local church that deeply honored and was deeply rooted in the word of God, yet at the same time was desiring for the people of the, of the church to experience the life and liberty of the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And for all of that to come together so that those who don't know Jesus could taste and see that God is good. That was the burden and concern in our heart that motivated us to plant church in the city. But I want to say this, The vision that God has for my life is not singularly church-focused. I am not only passionate about local church. I have a burden as a husband to want to one day stand before my Father in heaven and present the bride that He has entrusted to me back to Him, radiant and glowing and beautiful. I have a burden as a father to want to see my children raised up as godly men and women, serving his purposes and changing the world around them. I have a burden as a leader and as a friend to want to see each of you running further and faster than I ever could. I have a burden as a citizen of this city and a citizen of this nation, but ultimately a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, to want to see righteousness and justice as the foundation on which our culture and society is built. You see, my vision is not just focused on church. My vision is multifaceted. So when I ask you the question, what burdens your heart? What concerns you? Don't just think one thing. Allow the, 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 the manifold, multifaceted wisdom and glory and goodness of God to impact you from all angles so that you can begin to crystallize out the number of burdens that you carry, which could ultimately perhaps one day become a crystallized out vision of, of what God has called you to. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, it said, Paul writes this, we are God's workmanship, we are God's craftsmanship, we are God's masterpiece, created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. What, is, what Paul is essentially saying is, as you and I abide in God, as we discover our worth and value and identity in Christ, and then begin to move with God, we begin to discover the multifaceted vision and purpose that he has for our lives. What burdens you and what concerns you? What breaks your heart? 
I think the last sentence of Nehemiah chapter 1 for me is probably one of the most critical sentences, if not in the entire book, then certainly in that first chapter. And Nehemiah, the very last verse of, of Nehemiah, I think there are different ways that we can read it. We can read the last verse of Nehemiah chapter 1 as if we were Eeyore, and it would go something like this. I was a lonely cupbearer to the king. In other words, what on earth could I ever possibly do for God? I am just a cupbearer to the king. How could God ever use me? Or I think we could read Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 11 as Nehemiah read it or how I imagined Nehemiah to read it. I was a cupbearer to the king. I have been strategically located and placed here by the Father for a time such as this. He realized that although he had favor with an earthly king, he rested under the fullness of of the reality of his favor under the king of kings. I don't know who said this. I think it might have been Aiden who said this. But this this for me is profound. Sometimes God calls us to something less than what we think, but it ends up being more than, than what we ever dreamed. Sometimes God calls us to something less than what we think, but it ends up being more than what we ever dreamed. And so I want to bombard you again with a couple more questions that are on your sheet. Where has God uniquely and specifically placed you right now? What is your unique sphere of influence and impact? You have to realize that where God has placed you is God's endorsement that he wants to use you to bring about impact in your sphere of influence. He wants you to bring about the advancing of his kingdom through you in the context in which he has placed you. But I want to challenge us. Don't be an Eeyore. Don't be an Eeyore. Don't live with excuses as I have at times, and I'm sure you have at times. And so I ask you this question. How have you limited yourself? What excuses have you used to defend your belief that God can't or won't use you? I want to say, friends, it's time to remove that lens of being defeated. It's time to remove that cloak that has uh, has, uh, overwhelmed so many of us. That season is over. We are moving into a new season, a new season of possibilities, a new season of saying yes to God, a new season of courage where we are stepping out in boldness to see God do what he wants to do in us and through us. And so those three questions that are on your sheet that I'm going to ask you to take back with you, and this week I want you to consider the the answer to these three questions. Number one, what breaks your heart? Number two, where has God uniquely and specifically placed you right now? And number three, what excuses have you used to defend your belief that God can't or won't use you? I want to give you very, a few very quick, a few very brief applications as we land this morning. And then we're going to break bread and go back into time of worship. I want to give you five applications that we can think about as we answer those questions. Number one, number one, let his heart become your heart. Let his heart, let God's heart become your heart. Psalm 37 tells us God gives us the desires of our hearts. And I think that verse could very easily, without dishonoring the text, be translated, God gives, you the, God gives us the desires of his heart. You see, our heart becomes his heart. No, his heart becomes our heart. Sorry, his heart becomes our heart. That would have been heresy. God's heart becomes becomes our heart when we do the things that Psalm 37 tells us to do. 
Psalm 37 tells us to, to trust in the Lord, to take delight in the Lord, to commit our way to the Lord, to be still before the Lord. When we grow close to God through, through prayer and through reading His Word and through, and through worship and through fellowship and, 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 and being in His presence, God's heart is imparted to us. Number two, I want to say follow God's general will. While you are discovering God's specific will for your life, while you are learning what are the unique and specific things God has called you to, while you're coming to understand how the gracious hand of the Lord is uniquely upon you, all of us have the responsibility and the opportunity and the privilege to follow God's general will, to love one another, to share the love of Jesus, to desire to grow in the spiritual gifts, etc., etc. Number three, take the long view. Take the long view. I've said a little earlier on that vision begins with concern. But can I add this as a, maybe a follow-on point? Yes, vision begins with concern, but vision does not necessarily require immediate action. We'll learn this next week, but you know what Nehemiah did in response to the burden that was on his heart? He fasted and prayed for, 40, for four months. He fasted and prayed for four months. He wept before the Lord, and he allowed that burden to begin to grow, and strategy begin to begin to develop. Vision hardly ever requires immediate action, but it always requires patience. Number four, make the decision to belong. I want to say, friends, we all need to take the time and walk closely with the Lord as we discover what it means to be part of a local church. For some, it's a, it's a fairly quick decision. For others, it does take time. And I'm not putting a time frame to that. But what I am asking every single one of us to do is to walk with the Lord to bring us to that place where we can eventually belong in a meaningful way. In order for your vision to be outworked, you need the people around you as much as, as, much as they need you to be part of the vision that God has given them. Brian Johnson from, from Bethel Church says this, God, a church is God's idea. Things get messy at times and you'll need to be a professional at forgiveness. But staying faithful to his idea of local church will attract favor and grace on your life. And then lastly, I want to say, don't settle for what you can do. I highly doubt a vision that you can achieve in your own strength with your own set of resources, I highly doubt that is God's vision for your life. I know that sounds perhaps a little black and white and a little controversial, but I absolutely believe that. God wants us to be stretched. God wants us to be in a place where our vision overwhelms us, even scares us to the point where we have to climb out of the boat and trust for Jesus to come through. Don't settle for what you can do. What if God said to us, do whatever I've put on your heart to do and I will bless it. What if God said to us, what if God said to you, do whatever I have put on your heart to do and I will bless it. Honestly, friends, the season I, I believe we're in right now, I think he is saying that. I believe he is saying that. Thanks again for listening. Subscribe on iTunes and visit us at churchinthecity.us. Church in the City, all of Jesus for everyone.